Good morning, everybody. My apologies. Obviously, that should be Acts 20, 17 to 38, not Acts 19. Uh, but um, if you'd like to keep your pew Bibles open uh, at page 902, that's our text for today, the Acts text. And uh, it's a morning of farewells. Uh, and this is a farewell speech. It's Paul's farewell speech to the eldership of the church in Ephesus, a city that he had spent a lot of time in, a church that he devoted a lot of hard work to. And such as a farewell speech, we might expect, well, what do you expect from a farewell speech? I, I reckon we're going we're gonna to hear a summary of his achievements while in Ephesus, uh, maybe a couple of touching, reminiscing anecdotes, that would be good. Perhaps a joke or two that, uh, yeah, win the crowd, that's great. Um, and then, of course, the lots of expressions of thanks and gratitude to others who'd worked for him. And, of course, uh, we expect this speech to conclude with many words of love and But none of those elements are present. In fact, as a speech of any type, and perhaps especially as a farewell speech, it may well appear on first reading to actually be uh, defensive, self-justifying, adversarial, and basically pretty insensitive. But actually, Paul is deadly serious about something that is serious. Luke also is a speeches, not only to the official fellowship, but in fact to every generation of Christians thereafter. Otherwise, he would not have taken such power in such detail. So what is the significance of this speech? Well, in a nutshell, the significance of this speech is that Paul expects the Ephesian elders to measure themselves and to measure future leaders against the pattern set by Paul. The speech is addressed to elders. That's the word in verse 17, a word which translates the Greek word presbyteros, uh, elders, but you, you can actually they're also called overseers, that, that is episkopos, a word which was traditionally translated bishop, and they're also called pastors or shepherds of God's flock in verse 28. So it's a very general speech, generally addressed to all church leaders, irrespective of their exact title or their office. This is a church a church leaders. And again, in a nutshell, the significance of the speech is that Paul expects the Ephesian elders to measure themselves and to measure future elders against the pattern set by Paul. The um, speech is well organized into what theologians call a chiastic structure, which is basically a fancy way of saying cross-shaped structure, uh, a fancy way of layering into a mirror image um, all of the things he wants to talk about so that the Max is in the middle. Uh, chiastic structures are incredibly common in the Bible, reflecting the way in which Jews thought and taught and preached and wrote. So what are Paul's topics? Well, actually, he begins his address and he closes his address by looking at his own personal conduct. How did he behave himself? And then he includes words about his ministry. What was his ministry like? And then he includes words about the future, about 
his future and the church's future. And then right in the middle comes an imperative, a command, a thing that he is commanding the Ephesian elders to do in the light of all of these things. Um, What I'm going to do basically in my sermon now is to collate and rearrange this information, presenting the topics in a different order in order that we can better understand Paul's message because we generally like our conclusions at the end and not in the middle. So that's the way I'll give it to you because we don't tend to think in the same terms as first century Jews. So let's go through these topics. Topic A, Paul's personal conduct. What do we learn? Well, he says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the Roman province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Um, Paul, we are perhaps thinking, um, he wouldn't be telling us how humble he was if he was really so humble. Um, but, but actually, it's important that he does um, because his hearers need to be reminded. What he's saying is he served the Lord with humility. He, he didn't boss people around. He didn't lord it over others. He didn't throw his weight around. He didn't demand precedence or ask to be treated like some kind of hierarchical superior. And it's really important that the Ephesian elders remember that that's just what he was like. He was humble. And, and he did this with tears, um, which, which means he did it with all sincerity uh, and, and with vulnerability. He shared with them his struggles just as they shared with him their struggles. And the fact that he did this whilst being severely tested by the plots of the Jews means that he kept on serving Jesus even when he himself was under severe attack. He persevered. He kept his head. And to use a battlefront analogy, he kept on bandaging the wounded and running back out there to to collect the injured even when he himself was being fired upon. Courage in the face of of the enemy. Well, returning to the topic of personal conduct in verses 34 and 35, Paul says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, Paul's not in it for the money. And that's incredible that the Ephesian elders remember that and know that and understand that. He, not only did he refuse to allow the Corinthian church and the Ephesian church to give him anything, he didn't allow them to give him anything. Not only that, when he was with them, he also insisted that his ministry team was self-supporting by way of their trade skills, uh, leatherworking, tent working, stuff like that. Now, from the the New Testament, we know that, that both Jesus and Paul spoke about it being okay for those who are in full term church service to receive an income from the church in order that they be supported in ministry. So uh, St. Barnabas pays me a stipend. Um, I don't get a wage. I don't get a salary. I get a stipend. What is that? A stipend is enough money for me to live on. 
not in return for my work. I'm not paid for ministry. Uh, rather, I'm supported in ministry in order that I can minister to others. And when St. Barnabas does that for me, and perhaps for others as well, um, we're not in violation of this text. However, I think actually the text reminds us, and we need to keep on remembering, that actually paying folk for Christian service can create enormous problems. Um, And it, it shouldn't be that folk enter into Christian service with any kind of sense of entitlement. Um, I actually think love of money can be a common and serious sin for many people in Christian ministry. And part of the problem is that pastors with a love of money are often aware, unaware that they have a love of money because of the way the envy or sense of entitlement or the deceptiveness of greed is working on them. And the Old Testament is... Uh, full of stories illustrating this curious point that those who serve the Lord are often full of greed without even realizing it. Um, Perhaps the best Old Testament story, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is the one that concerns Nainan the Syrian, Elisha the prophet, and his assistant Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 5. And boy, I really recommend you go home and read that story. Um, I, I have to admit painfully that whenever I read that story, the guy I identify most with is Gehazi. <laughs> so love of money, it's, a real, it's really difficult to spot, but incredibly important to spot it and to kill it. So then, Paul, unlike so many, he's not a peddler of religious messages for material gain. And he'll do anything he can to make sure the churches he serves knows this and that they're ready to look really, really hard at any future teacher, preacher, prophet or priest who may come their way in the future. Do they have a love of money? If they do, are they even vaguely aware of it? Well, if Paul kind of shuts the door on love of money, what does he put in its place? And actually, it's love of hard work. What kind of hard work? Well, the kind that serves others, that pays enough to meet his own needs as well as to provide for those dependent on him, perhaps with a little left over so that he can have something to share with those in need. That, that's, a good, that's a good recipe. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, uh, Paul's love of hard work as a real way of worshipping God was staggeringly vulgar and repulsive to the Greek mind, Um, to, to the Gentile world of his time. Proper people did not work. That's what slaves did. The unwashed, unthinking, unintelligent masses. Real people didn't work. They just wafted around in bedsheets. Incredibly vulgar idea, love of hard work. Today it's less countercultural, praise God. Perhaps because many of us have inherited um, a relatively healthy Protestant work ethic based upon a biblical vision of work as a good thing from the God who works. Well, okay, let's summarize Paul's personal conduct so that we know what Christian leadership looks like. Humble, not arrogant. Love of hard work, not of money. And then let's move on to Paul's second topic. Topic B, 
Paul's ministry conduct. The relevant verses are verse 20 and 21, and then verses 26 and 27, and combining those sources, Paul says this. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all people, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Well, um, Paul has, there's a specific message. Paul has preached the gospel to everyone without distinction, to both Jews and to Greeks. In other words, that means to everybody. He's preached that in order to be saved, people, all people, must turn back to God, turn away from ignoring him, turn away from disbelieving what he has to say, turn to him in believing faith, and put their specifically in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In order to be saved, one must believe the Word of God with a capital W, that is, to believe in Jesus as the capital W word of God, the word that must be believed. That's Paul's specific message. More generally, Paul has declared the whole will or counsel of God. This is to say that in addition to preaching the specific salvation message about Jesus and the cross, he's taught faithfully about all matters of life as a disciple of Christ. Money, sexual ethics, marriage and family and how to behave at work and at home and at church. In order to know how to live as God's people, one must believe the words of God Words now with a lowercase w. What God has said about every aspect of human life, us relating to him, us relating to each other, us relating to the rest of the creation. And um, what's really important for us to see is that Paul has transmitted this data without error, without deletion, without addition, and without substitution. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's of critical importance. You know, because if he had made any mistakes, if there had been deletions or additions or substitutions, he'd have blood on his hand. Why would he have blood on his hands? Because bad theology costs lives. Um, that's That's a... Turn of phrase I often use. You may have heard me say that before. Bad theology costs lives. And I, I don't have time this morning to defend that statement. But if I did have time to defend that statement, I would call two witnesses. Firstly, the Bible. And secondly, all of human history. Because whenever people believe wrong things about God, his character, his work in history, it leads to wrong ways of living to bad decisions, to delusions, and delusions are inevitably harmful. Bad theology costs lives. Um, elders uh, today, which includes uh, pastors and teachers, and Sunday school teachers, and lots of different people, elders today, can, and home group leaders, elders today can make sure that they achieve the same goal 
if they apply themselves to preaching and teaching the Bible and indeed the whole Bible, not just the bits that they like. And by making sure that they say clearly what it is saying. And all the more so when we recognize that there will always be significant parts of the message that are repugnant to the prevailing culture and or seem antiquated, quaint, or... Um, so, there are lots of pairings in this. Um, Paul taught everybody, both Jew and Gentile, Paul taught everything, both gospel and the whole will of God. Paul taught everywhere, both public and private venues. Comprehensive ministry. Let's move on to Paul's third topic, topic C, the future. Verses 22 to 24 concern Paul's own future. He knows that he's walking into trouble. When you walk into Jerusalem, you walk into trouble. Why is it important that the Ephesian elders know this? Well, actually, because now for eight chapters, we, as part of his audience, for eight chapters now, we've actually seen Paul walk away from trouble. Um, the standard Christian response to persecution is to flee. Uh, Paul's done a lot of fleeing. There are several reasons for that, but the most pressing reason is that usually it's the most loving thing to do. The right way to love an enemy who wants to kill you or to remove you is to voluntarily go in order to, firstly, give him what he wants. Secondly, protect him from the terrible guilt of having harmed a child of the Most High God. Occasionally, Christians don't flee in the face of persecution. Sometimes it's simply because they can't. At other times, it's because they sense the Spirit of God calling them to stay and get crucified. Paul is going to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is compelling him to go. He knows that, that going to Jerusalem is God's will for his life. But the Spirit is forewarning him that persecutions, imprisonments, um, it's going to be a part of that. Well, Jesus walked through and away from trouble the whole time of his public ministry. But when it was time to go to the cross, he set out resolutely, set out for Jerusalem, knowing exactly what was going to happen to him when he got there. Um, in, in the 1930s, uh, British and American Christians begged Dietrich Bonhoeffer not to return to his native land, uh, which was Germany. Because they knew, Dietrich, if you go back to Germany, you're going to be in trouble with the Nazis. There'll be imprisonments, there'll be persecutions, possibly death. Please don't go back to Germany. It was biblical, wise, and utterly correct for Dietrich's Christian friends to beg him not to return. That was the right thing to do, and Dietrich would have been a fool not to have listened to them. However, Dietrich sensed that the Spirit of God was calling him to return. That was God's will. He knew it. Um, he did not know whether he would live or die, but he articulated his call in something like these terms. He said, one day the war will end and it will be time to rebuild the church in Germany. 
How will I be able to minister to the German Christian community if I have not traveled with them through these same terrible times? That's why he returned. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis on the 9th of April, 1945, 29 days before the end of the Second World War. Um, Jesus, Paul, and Bonhoeffer, they all know that there's something more important than survival, and that is faithfulness. It's, it's not as though survival is unimportant, but so infinitely more important is just being faithful. And any who would follow them, desiring to be faithful rather than survival, must be prepared for that decision to be tested. Verse 24, however, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. Well, um, if Paul expects Christians to copy him in fleeing from persecution, perhaps they, well, definitely, they need to know that a day may come when they need to copy him by not fleeing from persecution. With, with respect to the future of the Ephesian church, hardships uh, are coming for them too. Verses 29 and 31. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Well, uh, false teachers will come from everywhere, both from inside the church and from outside the church. The, the job of the eldership is twofold. They, they must teach what is true as well as rebuke what is false. And uh, with that in mind, uh, two weeks ago, I spoke about fundamentalism and the freedom that we have here at St. Barnabas. Indeed, I boasted of it. I spoke about the freedom we have here to, to disagree with each other on all kinds of matters of faith and doctrine. And in the context of that, where we were looking at the riot in Ephesus, um, we were reflecting on the toxicity of using cultural identity to enforce con conformity. And I was right to make that point, even if I do say so myself. I, I now want to make a balancing point that in no way undermines what I said two weeks ago. For just as two weeks ago I warned us about the dangers of fundamentalist thinking, I now today want to issue a warning about liberal theology. Now, the word liberal has many different meanings, and it may have either positive or negative connotations for you. But <clears throat> when we're talking about theology, that is, uh, thinking about God and the Bible, liberal theology can be defined as theology that says that, yeah, the Bible is good and useful, but what really, well, when push comes to shove, really the final authority on all matters of doctrine and faith is not the Bible, but actually it's common sense. And that assumption, which looks harmless enough, that assumption actually is used as a scalpel that allows Christian uh, liberal theologians to cut out 
of church anything actually that offends either their, their minds or their sensibilities. If you find yourself, for example, deeply offended by something you read in the Old Testament, you can always say, yeah, but um, this is a very ancient text coming from a pre-scientific age, so let's basically ignore it. I was going to give you um, some examples of Christian doctrines that liberal theologians typically reject, but every time I compiled such a list, I realized that it was essentially everything. Liberal theologians use their scalpel to whittle and whittle and whittle and whittle until there is only really one thing left that they're prepared to affirm, and that is this. God loves us, and therefore we should love one another too. And actually, that's a true and beautiful, but actually it's not distinctly Christian. And it says nothing about Jesus, nothing about the cross, nothing about sin, death, condemnation, eternal judgment. It says nothing about how to actually live as a Christian. It says nothing about what love is and isn't. Uh, what happens in liberal churches as you start just scalping out doctrine after doctrine, spiritual starvation sets in and you end up with spiritual malnutrition leading to spiritual morbidity, leading to spiritual death, as is overwhelmingly self-evident here in Perth and all over the world. Liberal churches are either dead or dying. Otherwise, of course, uh, liberal Christians tend to be uh, typically extremely nice people. In contrast, then, what do Anglicans believe? Well, um, here's um, Article 6 of the Anglican Statement of Faith. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man or any person that it should be believed as an article of faith. More importantly, what does Scripture itself teach? Here we are. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. What did it say? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful. What for? Well, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, what do you know? We as Christians, we need the whole Bible. And we need to take all of it seriously as God's word. So then, when push comes to shove, it is neither Christian nor Anglican to be liberal, theologically speaking. To, to be sure, as we as a community, when we interpret and apply the teachings of Scripture, we find that it's hard work, and we may not all reach the same conclusions, but we agree on one definite foundation, that the Bible is the final authority on all matters of faith and doctrine, not common sense. The Bible stands over common sense. It judges our minds, not the other way around. The Bible is the final authority on all matters of faith and doctrine. And when we keep that in mind, we will move slowly and surely, not only towards spiritual health and vitality, but actually also towards unity. So then, um, what am I saying and what am I not saying? Here's some things I'm not saying. I'm not saying that liberal thinkers are not welcome here. Actually, everybody's welcome here. 
Um, I'm not saying that the observations of liberal theologians aren't useful. Actually, indeed, liberal theologians often make startlingly good observations from Scripture. And I'm not saying that the conclusions of liberal theologians aren't welcome here. Indeed, we're happy to test everything against Scripture. But I am saying that the assumptions of the liberal theological movement are not welcome here. This is not a liberal church. We believe that the Bible is God's word. So so now to the conclusion, the climax, verse 28, right in the middle. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be, Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Um, the, the elders are actually, firstly, they're to keep watch over themselves. That's their first duty, uh, to make sure that they're walking humbly with the Lord, that they're keeping themselves from sin. The, secondly, they are to keep watch over the flock. That is to say, the congregation that they oversee to keep them from sin and to see that they're walking humbly with their Lord. How are they going to do that? Well, here's Paul's prescription, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, keep holding on to God. Keep praying. Keep reading your Bibles. Keep reading it by yourself. Keep reading it in prayers in pairs and triplets. Keep reading it in small groups. Keep reading it in congregations. Keep reading it as a city of Christians in the city to which God has called you to live. Keep hold of God's word. Keep believing God's words. And remember that this word is a word of grace. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith when we put our trust in Jesus. And that itself, it's a gift from God. We are not saved by works, so no one can boast. Well, um, in conclusion, the significance of this speech is that Paul expects the Ephesian elders to measure themselves and to measure future elders against the pattern set by Paul. Uh, This text is a ruler, something for us to measure ourselves against, individually, corporately, collectively, whether or not we hold an office as an elder, but especially if we hold an office as an elder. Something to read, mark, inwardly digest, let it judge us. And the Lord be with you.